As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Uh, we're joined today by David Ornstein and Adam Crafton. Uh, coming up after a shambolic defeat at the start of a difficult run of games, we'll discuss Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's future. We'll also talk about uh, Newcastle United with the Athletic learning that there is considerable pressure from Premier League clubs around the takeover and other issues. And also in the podcast, our Chelsea writer Simon Johnson will join us. We'll talk Edouard Mendy and Romelu Lukaku. David will also tell us about his trip to Milan to speak to Olivier Giroud. So let's start then with your column today, David. Premier League clubs not happy with the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United. What in particular don't they like about it? Yeah, well, Mark, not happy is an understatement. Most of them are seething about it. And the reasons vary from moral, according to some of them, but make of that what you will, and financial, sporting. I think there's a fear among those towards the top end of the Premier League or with the aspirations of being there, that their competition is about to get a lot more difficult. And a fear among those who tend to compete at the bottom that one of their rivals for relegation may be about to depart that zone of the Premier League. It has been relayed to me that from the meetings that have taken place, such as last week, there has been a vocal element within the Premier League group of clubs, especially from the clubs with female chief executives, namely Everton, Leicester and West Ham. I think Burnley have also been very vocal on a moral front towards Saudi Arabia, human rights, women's rights, LBGTQ plus persecution. But the exact reasoning uh, is sort of unknown and a lot of scepticism around it. Is it just self-interest? But it's not going away, Mark. It's bubbling under the surface. Many of these clubs are deeply unhappy and are holding more meetings and conversations. Whether they can do anything now or not, I don't know, but certainly they have the power to change rules and things for the future. And let's not forget, these were rules that the Premier League clubs made themselves, approved themselves and have had opportunities to change in the past and have decided against doing so, which raises the suspicion that if they were in this position, they would uh, not have a problem. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that the cynicism tends to come from myself. Uh, Adam sometimes sometimes chips in with cynicism as well. Uh, and I would say that during David's answer, there was a a, a slightly cynical look on your face. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. It's quite interesting in in the regards to you know the past week or so. Definitely would you know reflect what David said in terms of the messages being receiving from people at different Premier League clubs. You know, particularly I think around the lack of public communication from the Premier League on this. The fact that people such as CEO Richard Masters, Chairman Gary Hoffman, after approving this takeover have not come out publicly to explain it or to give answers i think you know the very obvious follow-up to that is what on earth are they going to say the questions are obvious 
the answers are not going to be popular whatsoever. Is there, you know, and I suppose the, the question that follows that is, is there really a benefit if you're the Premier League? That's a really interesting point because all of us that have been covering Newcastle over this weekend or during the takeover have had to ask those questions and have then had to ask those questions to Newcastle fans, Newcastle pundits. I feel like I've spent half my weekend asking Alan Shearer the same questions about Saudi Arabia, the influence of Newcastle United. Pundits and football fans who are probably not best qualified, let's be honest, to talk about the intricacies of a Saudi Arabian influence takeover of a football club are expected to give answers on it. The media seems to expect Newcastle fans to be able to explain the pros and cons of this takeover. And yet the Premier League bigwigs, well, how well, how could they answer these questions? Well, they've got to. I agree. But you know, their position at the moment is that they're not. And the reason I think the reasoning behind that is there is basically an acceptance within the Premier League that these of very, very difficult answers to communicate that, you know, their whole argument for approving this takeover, you know, without going too far into the details is the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is separate from the public investment fund, the Saudi public investment fund that owns 80% of Newcastle United now. The obvious counter argument to that is that the board of the public investment fund is composed of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, six government ministers, a royal court advisor, and the chairman of the state-owned Saudi Aramco. He's also the chairman of Newcastle as the only individual on that PIF board who's not a member of the government or, I suppose, royal family or royal court. And that's Yasser al-Rumayan, who was at uh, St. James's Park yesterday. We keep asking the Premier League, how, in practice, are you going to regulate that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is separate from this public investment fund in terms of the running of Newcastle United? How, if... The crown prince wakes up one day and decides he wants to send the manager a text and say, you know, fancy him at left back at the weekend. And the Premier League is alerted to that text because the manager's not very happy about it. And it comes out through an agent, then a newspaper. Are the Premier League going to start clamping down on, on the Saudi Arabian crown prince? As a result of that, very unlikely, given the current relations between the British government and Saudi Arabia. And that's, that is where the Premier League need to at some point publicly explain um, how on earth they intend to regulate this this agreement. As I said, the Saudi PIF insist they are an autonomous, commercially driven investment fund. Um, I don't fully know what that means. And actually, David, the cynic in me was was off straight away when when you put moral first and and then and then went on to, to financial and and sporting. But actually, you did highlight two, two or three clubs who, who who probably quite rightly do take the moral side of things, maybe ahead of the financial and the sporting. The group of clubs as a whole, though, not just the few that you mentioned, the rest of the Premier League, they want changes at the top of the Premier League now, do they? First on the communication point that Adam makes, the clubs are very angry about that. Premier League point out that this takeover, like all takeovers, is bound by confidentiality that cannot be breached. And they're in a no-win situation in that while the takeover was being mooted and negotiated, Newcastle fans were berating the Premier League for not putting it through. And Newcastle as a club were too. They took legal action or were in sort of uh, mediation with the Premier League. And then the moment it does go through, it's the rest of the Premier League clubs that turn on the Premier League as an organisation. So it's very difficult. You know, the clubs feel that even though there is confidentiality, there is a way of communicating off the record so that they are prepared and can voice their opinion on this sort of thing. But then that sets a very dangerous precedent about what influence clubs can exert over takeovers in advance and how would they feel if they were in that position. And the explanation that Adam is talking about, the Premier League have attempted to deliver. They held an extraordinary meeting of the 19 other Premier League clubs last Tuesday to try and explain how this came about, the communication and everything. Uh, I don't think that really washed with those clubs or most of those clubs. The sort of dissatisfaction is simmering to the point at which now a majority of clubs, I'm told, not all of them, but a majority want change at the top of the Premier League. And the target of that change is the chairman, 
Gary Hoffman, as I understand it. Now, he was only appointed in April of 2020. So it's been a pretty turbulent 18 months, the pandemic, the attempted uh, European Super League that failed and the Newcastle takeover now, some other issues in there too. Some clubs obviously feel stronger than others and are more vocal than others. I must stress, this isn't just the top six. We've canvassed uh, opinion from throughout the league and over a number of issues, not just Newcastle. It doesn't seem that Gary Hoffman is very popular. It seems that many of the clubs are longing for the days of Richard Scudamore, somebody who held real clout with government over political issues, communications, governance, and so on. Now it's reaching a point where those who are responsible for the league in terms of the members, the shareholders, the 20 clubs, or 19 if you take Newcastle out of it, want to change things up. And the target of their ire, as I report in our Monday column, is Gary Hoffman. There's been no vote of no confidence so far. I'm told that if they decide they want to get rid of him, it won't go that far. They'll sort it out in advance. Uh, and that could leave yet another vacuum at the top of the Premier League. It's quite interesting what you say, David, in that I mean, Hoffman's a little bit of a scapegoat. I'm not saying from you. I mean, by, yeah. by these clubs for what's happening at the moment i mean do you remember project big picture last year which was sort of the big thing that preempted the super league i was just reading sam wallace in the telegraph over the weekend and he broke that story at the time and he was writing about actually the project big picture document contained this clause that said any new takeover would require approval from nine premier league clubs and it would only require a two-thirds majority in order for it to be approved or disapproved by those nine clubs. And the idea was that it would always be the nine clubs who had been in the Premier League for the longest period of time at that moment. Probably the big, you know, the big six clubs or the clubs you would consider the most consistent in the Premier League would have a veto over future takeovers. So actually that would have been one way in this in which this takeover could have been blocked. However, that was clearly about sporting advantage because that was about big six clubs looking at the current landscape thinking, well, we don't need any more rivals for the Champions League. You know, everything you're saying is is correct. And the, and the other thing, as you said at the start of the show, is these clubs could have changed the rules. These clubs have had opportunities to change the rules. Saudi interest in Premier League football clubs has been going back three or four years. You know, there was rumours about Manchester United and Saudi Arabia a few years ago as well. So if they felt this strongly about it, some of these Premier League meetings, the Premier League clubs make the rules, they could have made a proposal, a motion, and challenged each other to, to, to go by it. But the, I think the reality is that all these clubs, increasingly assets valued at billions of pounds, are looking at it and thinking, what's our exit strategy? How do we get out of this at some point? And the reality is they're thinking, well, we can't go around ruling out potential owners on ethical grounds because that's a slippery slope and we may end up with no one to sell to. The human side of this, Adam, you, I mean, your article on The Athletic is, is remarkable on LGBT plus people in Saudi Arabia, their risks, what they go through. It is moving. It provokes a smile at times, such as the the love of RuPaul's Drag Race UK uh, uh, edition. How did you find writing it? I'm a bit weird. I'm quite good at compartmentalising when, when I'm writing. I, I found right. the conversations pretty pretty horrific, pretty haunting. The conversation you have, I'm not sure how you can compartmentalise this. When you go into a group call with over 20 LGBT plus people present on that call, some of whom are within... Saudi Arabia and they actually think they actually think you might be a policeman to start with don't they yeah so just to give listeners context the idea was obviously over the past week or so since the takeover people have been you know people have sort of mentioned in passing human rights concerns obviously a huge amount of coverage around the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the possible links to the Saudi Saudi state in that regard and people would keep mentioning what about women and what about LGBT people and I wanted to try and speak to those LGBT people rather than just I think sometimes we have a temptation, you know, we speak to an academic and then we write that and then that's the end of it. And I want to try and make tangible those human rights abuses and violations. And the most powerful way of, of doing that is by speaking to people. Now, I was very fortunate that I was connected via different forms of social media to, to a group, to different groups of LGBT people, both within Saudi Arabia, but then also in the Saudi diaspora, some of whom are in safe houses in the US or different countries around Europe um, and elsewhere awaiting possible asylum status. Some of them 
may be sent back for which the, the fate is obvious in those cases and it was then just about asking questions you know is it what people say it's like you know what i came to realize is it you know it's not like the saudis are going around chopping heads off left right and center knocking on doors but it's a far more it's almost a torturous form of existence it's it's a society that treats lgbt people as though they are ill as though they are sick there were multiple accounts of cure therapy processes some of which will make you vomit, I think, almost just reading them. They are revolting, repulsive, a form of torture. You know, it goes beyond just attempts to pray away sexuality. It's into real physical abuse, isolation rooms. But then there's also stories of a 25-year-old uh, social media influencer who is gay, who, after posting a shirtless photo on, on Twitter, was arrested, according to reports, has been in prison for the last two years. No sign of his release. I would say on all of this, all the allegations were presented both to the Saudi Public Investment Fund um, and the Saudi Embassy in London. There was no comment from either party. Um, the Public Investment Fund obviously insists that they are an autonomous, uh, commercially driven investment fund and not and, and separate to the state. So they say it's you know it's not for them to answer, despite six government ministers being on its board. There's a line in in the article: they do not castigate Newcastle supporters, but do seek to educate. Um, and maybe this is the final point on this with both of you, which is you you probably wouldn't have written this article had the takeover not gone through. So you've shone a light now on what is going on. And if there is, and and as, as Alan Shearer said to me uh, uh, over the weekend, you know, questions have to be asked, questions need to be asked. And therefore... I'm not going to say if there's a positive on this side to come out of it, but actually it has opened up a discussion, a debate, and shone a light on the situation, certainly for this community. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have to say that the LGBT people in Saudi Arabia I was speaking to said, you know, look, it's probably insufficient, you know, journalism in the West in terms of it's unlikely to change policy and you know, centuries of oppression um, towards LGBT people in Saudi Arabia. But they did say it, it's likely to be helpful and that protest by supporters is likely to be helpful. What I'm absolutely not doing is, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell Newcastle fans how to support their football club, how to spend their weekends, um, how they should feel about this. You know, all I wanted to do was talk to these people, hear what they have to say. I, I did think, you know, the particularly powerful quote where there was a lesbian woman that I was talking to who just said, it is heartbreaking to see people in the West celebrate the people who oppress us. I think that was a reference to the videos that she'd seen of, you know, Newcastle fans wearing, I suppose, mock Arabian dress and brandishing Saudi flags. And, you know, on the one hand, I'm I totally I totally get I totally get where she's coming from on that. I also totally get where if you're a Newcastle fan and you've not really been following this and you maybe don't know that much about it, it's a bit of fun, right? It's a bit of fun. And I'm not here to judge people or tell people what to do. But I found that a powerful message. And you know, I would say there was there was Tottenham supporters at the game yesterday who filmed their own sort of mini protest outside of the stadium in relation to Suhail Al Jamil, the 25-year-old influencer that I mentioned who's imprisoned. There was a van that a poster van that went round the stadium, which was organized by political activist Blair McDougall that had Jamal Khashoggi's face. So look, I mean, some supporters will be very interested in this and will continue to be very active in this space. Other people will take the view look, I work all week and then I go to the football with my kid and that, and that's it for me. And nobody's right or wrong in that respect. But I, you know, I think it is about understanding why people care so much and just, and just listening to these people and giving them a voice. Right next on the, oh, this will be fun. Let's talk about Manchester United. Oh, well, let's start with your column again. Let's start with your column again, David. I mean, I, I, I ought to say that in a more enthusiastic voice because obviously it is very good. But honestly, with United, Phil, I'm banging my head against a brick wall. Right, Marcus Rashford, uh, camp not happy with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Why not? Yeah, you would have seen the comments from Solskjaer in his pre-match press conference before the trip to Leicester uh, in which he was talking uh, about Marcus Rashford glowingly, it must be said, as always. But he did say it's now time for him to prioritise his football. And 
whatever he meant by that, which I'm sure was well-intended, it was taken in the way it was said. He needs to prioritise his football, uh, which is a nod towards the fact that in the last couple of years, he's done some spectacular work around child food poverty, as well as uh, some other things. He was uh, awarded an MBE in 2020. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer heaped praise on him for that, but, but he did say this. And naturally, it became the lead story on many outlets. This really upset Rashford's camp, as I understand it. And we provide details in the Monday column if you want to go and have a look, because the fact that he said it, regardless of that intention, which we discussed, meant it created headline news in a way that Rashford and his people have specifically been trying to get away from. You may remember in September uh, when there was a bit of noise around Rashford should stick to football, I think one politician said, and Rashford came out saying, no, I won't just stick to football. I've got a greater purpose. And um, he went on very eloquently as always. So this is a player who, if you speak to people at and around United, could not be more focused and dedicated and prioritising of his football career. That is, they all say, his top priority uh, during his rehab from this latest surgery, which, by the way, he delayed for Manchester United at the end of last season and for England in the Euros. And he came back six weeks ahead of schedule. He was in the training ground, apparently, before most others, staying later than many others, uh, sleeping there and... He puts everything into his career, etc. And I think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer knows this, but just the fact that he felt the need to say it or that he did utter it has really disappointed uh, some people around Rashford and they're not happy. Quite unusual, actually, Adam, for Solskjaer, because normally his his public utterances when it when it comes to, to his players are always incredibly supportive and I know Debbie's saying you know the idea behind this was to be supportive but doesn't often say anything that could even be taken any way as criticism of his players in public yeah no absolutely I mean probably the the biggest skill that Solskjaer has shown as manager of Manchester United has been his man management and his ability to understand players a little bit like Gareth Southgate I've always felt they're quite similar in, in their approach and in their limitations but yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. I think it's particularly frustrating for Rashford's camp because they know there's a group of people who have been waiting for the opportunity to use that argument against him, who have been waiting to pounce probably because they disagree with his politics in some respect or or, or, the, or the causes that he's been advancing. So I think it was clumsy rather than malicious by Solskjaer. Clearly his camp feels strongly as David reported. But, you know, I would say I think it's among the lesser of Solskjaer's most imminent uh, problems at Manchester United, which are, which are only rapidly escalating at the moment. Yes, of which there are many, many problems. But he's safe, according to the people you've spoken to. We reported uh, on The Athletic on Saturday evening after United's uh, defeat at Leicester that Solskjaer, his position is 100% secure as things stand, that he does retain the full backing of United's hierarchy and they're not looking to make a change. He's not going to be sacked. That's what we're told from from people we speak to. And of course, we know that things change in football and nothing surprises you, not least when you look at United's run of fixtures coming up. Atalanta, doubleheader in the Champions League, Liverpool, Tottenham, Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal on the horizon too. Watford. Watford's in there as well, don't forget. <laughs> Just sense this feeling among Manchester United fans. I would say more so on social media. I'd point out that, you know, the fans at the King Power Stadium for large sections of that first half, I think, especially were singing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's name and, and United are ac- acutely aware of that. They're not going to make knee-jerk reactions in response to sort of social media and, and, and wider commentary. Um, they are backing Solskjaer. They are building around him. We've seen that. They've handed him a new contract in July that runs until 2024 with the option of a further year. Uh, they invested heavily in him in the transfer market. But when you bring in the likes of Ronaldo, Sancho, Varane, you've already got star names there in Pogba and Bruno Fernandes. The 
intention is to win now. Uh, Solskjaer hasn't won a trophy yet at Manchester United. United haven't won a trophy since 2017. And so, of course, the pressure is building. But as we speak, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is safe. It's not only his new contract, Adam. It's the new contracts have gone to the coaching staff uh, as well. So, so the thing is... And even if they wanted to get rid of Solskjaer, then they'd have to, they'd more than likely have to get rid of the coaching staff as well, or several of them. I'm not sure there are that many alternatives who are out there. And maybe some of the alternatives that are out there, Antonio Conte being, being the prime example, come with a busload of their own staff as well. So financially for, for the club, <laughs> it doesn't make sense in some ways. Well, no, unless they start coming to the view that, you know, the cost of, of, of not making change could be bigger because you fall out of the Champions League or things like that. Obviously, David's reported what he has in relation to, to, to the manager being safe. I'd say, you know, a manager's always safe until he's not. I've always said with Solskjaer that I felt he was doing a good job. I feel like he's done a good job, but I feel like he stopped doing a good job for the club. It was possible to make a really good argument over the past couple of years that he was rebuilding, that he was developing young players. But as soon as you have Ronaldo there, it ceases to be a building project. It's a win now project. Once you've got a 36-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo, this year has to be United coming very, very close to winning the title. Not necessarily winning the title, but being in a title race. I mean, not being in a title race since Ferguson left, really. You know, and by that, I mean getting to April and feeling involved. And they've got a lot of problems. Michael Cox has written really well today on The Athletic about the issue with how you make Ronaldo work in Manchester United's system and who might need to be sacrificed in order to do that. In terms of alternatives, I've always sort of gone along with that view about, you know, is Conte just another Mourinho? He'll come in, he'll have a bit, a bit of impact, he'll have an impact, might win a couple of trophies, but then he'll burn the house down on the way out. The more I sort of watch United, the more I feel they need a head coach who is a really hands-on training ground coach who would be a real shock in terms of you always want to appoint someone, don't you, who's a little bit the opposite of the previous guy, which is why Solskjaer had such an impact after Mourinho. And it's for that reason that I feel like someone like Conte would probably have a really big impact on this group of players, at least in the short term, because of how you know he is one of those head coaches that's dragging players around the training field, that's incredibly hands-on from the coaching point of view, that's you know, very detailed. That's not to say Solskjaer's staff aren't detailed, you know. So these are all professional coaches, but I do think Conte is, is a very different personality and style of head coach. The more I consider it, the more I, th I think United could do a lot worse than do that. But, you know, I think we know with United that they only really tend to sack managers either when they feel that relations between the dressing room and manager is at complete breaking point, as it was with Mourinho, or when they suspect a manager and also as with Van Gogh, or when they feel that Champions League qualification is beyond the club and they're not near that stage yet. Into you know, only what seven or eight games into the season, United are only what five points off the top of the Premier League. So I can't see a haste from United, but should the next week, couple of weeks go wrong, their high profile home games, Liverpool, City, Atlanta, United have had issues at home. If they don't start getting results, I think it will turn a little bit. I, I take what David says about, you know, the fans are singing his name. I would say, I think there's been a little bit of a change of tune amongst supporters who are loyal to Solskjaer. They will always sing his name because they love him. You know, they love him as a person. They love him for what he did to the club. I think there is a growing number who suspect he may have reached a ceiling. I actually spoke to someone who knows him very well and was, you know, as long time an ally, I would say, of his. And they actually said to me this weekend that they felt Gdansk the defeat against Villarreal that you know they saw him after that that was the natural ending for him that it had reached a conclusion I remember someone saying to me after that that he looked shell-shocked in the sort of days after that defeat and United made a big decision in the summer to not only stand by him but to actually give him that big that new contract three years I think with the option of a of a fourth and I get why they did that because if you go into the final season as he would have done with only a year left to run then it creates a, you know, a huge amount of speculation. But on the other hand, they've stood by him and given this new contract. And you can argue, has he really earned that commitment of another three or four years based on the evidence? This is a manager who many people weren't having from the start. He was appointed on a temporary basis in December 2018. He did enough to get the job permanently in the spring of 2019. And at various points, despite him initially getting that three-year contract, he's looked to be wobbling 
and then pulled off results when he's needed them the most. But Adam points out, you're only safe until you're not. And as sure as Mark is to uh, exude cynicism on this pod, I am to talk about Arsenal. And Unai Emery was being backed by the Arsenal hierarchy to the hilt. And I reported on it at the time. They actually lost at Leicester as well. Um, and it was a, a devastating defeat, but they supported him at the highest level, at least publicly. And then their next defeat in uh, the Europa League was the end for him. He was gone. And then when you look at you know that point on the dressing room, I think that is what it comes down to these days. It's whether he's got the players or not. And once you've lost them, there's there's no coming back from it. I don't sense that he's lost them yet. And I also sense from people you speak to around the place that the players don't think he's going. And that's because of the amount that they've they've put behind him. You do look at this Manchester United squad, which is basically like Galacticos now, and you think about Manchester United's expectations and you wonder what's going on. No manager there has really succeeded to their level of expectations at all since Sir Alex Ferguson left. And they have, apart from David Moyes, showed not patience, but they've not been quick to get rid of Van Gaal and Mourinho. And I suspect the same will be true of Solskjaer. I do think he needs to start being selfish though now, Solskjaer. He has to start thinking about his own future as well as, you know, as well as those those individuals in the dressing room because he will not beat the clubs that are in front of him over the next few weeks by playing all of Mason Greenwood, Cristiano Ronaldo, Bruno Fernandes, Paul Pogba and Jadon Sancho in the same team. It's They will get torn to pieces um, and I will happily come back on this podcast in three weeks' time if I'm, proven, if I'm proven wrong on that. You cannot play all of these players at the same time and he's going to have to upset one or two of them. You know, that'll be up to him whether that's his £73 million winger or whether it's Paul Pogba whose contract is up at the end of the season and who he might feel like, well, I need to play him because we're trying to persuade him to stay at the club. And Ronaldo, you know, obviously the cult of personality that surrounds Ronaldo. But then you've also got players like Marcus Rashford and Edison Cavani, Jesse Lingard, all of whom have, you know, their own pretty high profiles as well in their own ways. This situation that Adam describes is a collective planning issue involving all of the key personnel that we're told about at Man United. Too many players. Yeah, but you're Ed Woodward, Matt Judge, John Murtagh, Darren Fletcher, Mike Phelan, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think, uh, is it Joel Glazer, who's the the most day-to-day influential of the ownership? And of course, I think it's at the end of the year that Ed Woodward is to step aside from his role. Uh, We think it's going to be Richard Arnold, the comes in for him. Um, so this is still a, um, a situation of musical chairs at United, while at the same time, they're trying to create a winning team that, as Adam says, has Paul Pogba out of contract in the summer. The most precocious talent imaginable in Mason Greenwood, Marcus Rashford coming back, Jesse Lingard, you didn't mention there. And then even at the back, an £80 million Pound central defender who who uh, did not impress again on, on Saturday and Harry Maguire and Rafael Varane has injury problems and so many different situations across the pitch that remain unaddressed and are not conducive to challenging the likes of yeah. City, Liverpool, Chelsea, who appear to be very settled and are flying. When you look at Liverpool, for example, in those front three positions, they probably have four or five players who you'll ever see play in those three positions. You've got Salah, Mane, Firmino, Origi, Jota. They're really the only ones that you see in those positions. Man United have about 12 who could, in any given game, play in that position. You've got, what, Greenwood, Sancho, Ronaldo, Cavani, Rashford, Lingard, Mata, Martial. Even Dan James, when he left for Leeds, was told you're going to be eighth in the pecking order at that position. And also Pogba often plays in on the left side, so almost as part of a front three. And Fernandez, of course. So they've just got too. They've got too many play. They've got too many players at the club in, in those positions. And I think that's a problem, particularly now they're out of the Carabao Cup as well. Um, and, and then you know the, the the another fundamental issue is the boardroom in terms of who would even make this decision. Edward was leaving the club. Richard, well, we think leaving the club. Richard Arnold's like his takeover. John Mertz is there as football director. Joel Glazer's there. But if you know, we know Sir Alex Ferguson is more influential now than he's been for a very long time at United. So who is 
who, who, would, who is the person who is ultimately going to be making this decision? You know, my understanding is likely to be Joel Glazer. How much do we, do, do United fans trust him to make that decision and get that right? And is there the body of correct advice around him to do that? I, these are, you know, all major, major questions. Um, but they're only five points off the top of the Premier League. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's finish uh, the pod by uh, talking about Chelsea, the athletic Simon Johnson is with us. You wrote last week, actually, Simon, about uh, Edouard Mendy and how good he has been, and yet nobody's talking about him. Everybody's talking about him now. So is he still <laughs> under the radar, or is he now above the radar? I think he's, he's got to be above the radar, a bit like how he tips that bicycle kick over the bar. It was a sublime performance, and, and some of the readers said, uh, this, this article has aged well, which... Um, uh, certainly doesn't apply to me, but it was, it was nice that um, my my words did. But yeah, I think there's there's a few reasons why Mendy is taking this long for him to get the kind of respect or, or clamour he deserves. When he was signed, he was very much uh, when you sort of think the kind of names Chelsea were being linked to, like uh, Jan Oblek from Atletico Madrid. Mendy, there wasn't really people didn't really know much about Mendy. Of course, he played in Liga. Um, had, had sort of had a very, very sort of slow rise to the game. The fact he was still claiming unemployment benefits sort of seven years ago explains a lot. But also because of the manner in which Chelsea play with, with three at the back and quite a defensive sort of formation at times, that a lot of the credit went to the defenders rather than Mendy for the amount of clean sheets. But it's not just Brentford where he's, he's made the difference. And um, Chelsea now have a goalkeeper Put it this way, if that was Kepa, he's certainly uh, been playing better under Tuchel, but I don't think Kepa would have got to some of those those efforts. And and people always say that a, a title-winning team needs a top goalkeeper. Well, I think Chelsea have got one. What are his main strengths? I mean, some of his saves against Brentford were fantastic, but 
I'm looking, <laughs> I remember I was talking to Shay Given and saying to him, oh, you know, he's a great shot stopper. And Shay Given went to me, well, what do you expect him to be? He's a goalkeeper. That's, <laughs> like, that's the whole point of them. And I thought, yeah, okay, fair enough. That's a fair point. So away from the actual saves, what what sets him apart, do you think, as someone who watches him week in, week out? I think it's also the sort of the way he commands his penalty areas. He's not afraid to, he's very dominant in terms of coming to collect crosses. And that sort of bond with the defence, that there's a, a real trust between them. I don't think, um, certainly when, when Keppel was having his conference problems, there was a real lack of trust between Keppel and, and, and the defence. And it kind of spread that panic whenever the ball was in the area. I think Mendy sort of brought a lot of calm assurance that he's going to deal with problems. Now, he, he's not perfect. And, and this is something I, I sort of referred to in the piece. For example, he's he's his uh, the ability with the ball at his feet is 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 not as good as an Allison or an Edison, and again, I think that's perhaps another reason why people don't haven't praised him too much up to now. Um, but overall, I think it's just his presence. He, he looks like a guy that's hard to beat, and that confidence is just oozing through that backline because he's there. Your article, Simon, uh, you know, also talks about him not being on the the Ballon d'Or shortlist, not being on the 30-man shortlist for that. Why do you think he's not on the shortlist? And there were some very interesting quotes in that about why he might not have been on the shortlist. Yeah, from uh, Khalidou Koulibaly, who, yeah. um, it, who inferred quite strongly it's due to the colour of his skin. That, of course, one can't sort of <laughs> clarify. I, I don't know, because Donnarumma is on there. And, of course, he he, he won the, the, the European Championships with Italy. He's the only keeper on there, isn't he? The only yeah. keeper on there. But you could argue, well, Mendy, Mendy uh, set a record uh, for a debutant in the Champions League on the way to winning it for the most clean sheets. So by that same logic, he should have been on there. It, it's a mystery to me. Um, again, maybe, again, it's because, as sort of Adams referred, and, and Rob Green sort of said the, the same thing in my piece, that, that that he does go unnoticed. He can be a quiet during the game. You, you don't perhaps notice him sometimes, um, and he isn't this sort of sexy kind of goalkeeper that like an Edison that can sort of hit strike a football eighty yards into a path of a footballer. He, he just he just does everything, all the basics well, and perhaps that doesn't win over people. And again, I, I sort of say. Perhaps people are sort of saying, "Oh, it's because of Rudiger. It's because of Thiago Silva. It's." because of Andreas Christensen, that all these clean sheets are being kept rather than also giving credit to Mendy as well. I also think that it's largely about who's in the public eye and who more conversation is over. Donnarumma has been better for a longer period of time, so he's earned uh, the right to be talked about and lauded. But yeah, on this particular evidence, it would seem that Mendy could quite possibly be ahead of him in sort of Ballon d'Or pecking orders. Um, Donnarumma had a high-profile free agency transfer to Paris Saint-Germain. He's got a big-name agent in Mino Raiola, which occupies a lot of column inches. And some of these things aren't really a meritocracy. They're kind of popularity contest. But it's still relatively early in, in Mendy's Chelsea and, and sort of top level career. So really excited to see how he goes on. And also uh, a real nod to Chelsea's recruitment because that was a shrewd piece of business. Yes, they've made mistakes. And whenever we do pieces about Chelsea's recruitment, we get stick from some Chelsea fans who point to the Keppers and the Ross Barclays and Danny Drinkwaters of this world. But if you look across all of the top clubs, there are not many better recruiters than Chelsea. Talk about the uh, recruitment that, that David was doing there. Um, their most ex expensive recruitment over the summer was Romelu Lukaku. You've you've also written about how they're still trying to work out the best way of using him. I can't take full credit for that because Antonio Conte flagged it first um, a few weeks ago. But he was... Yes, editor. <laughs> but, he, but he was right to. Um, of course, this is the man that, that has brought out the best in Lukaku um, for Inter Milan. He was superb. But again, I think we saw on Saturday, they're just not gelling uh, in attack. And it's, yes, of course, Lukaku, you have to look at him and what he's producing. But I think Tuchel is still trying to figure out his best attack. He's, he's constantly switched the players that, that Lukaku's playing with, whether it be on Saturday, it was he was playing alongside Werner. But we've seen Havertz and Mason Mount play behind Lukaku. Those two have not hit the ground running in terms of this season. Neither is Zayesh. There's been a lot of chopping and changing up top. 
So inevitably, that is going to have an effect on the understanding that, that's going on. And I just constantly look at it and go, they're, not, they're just not gelling. Plus, I would hasten to add, since the Arsenal game, Lukaku's debut, where he, he was superb, I've noticed opponents have done a very good job of blocking the pathway to Lukaku. If you remember Arsenal that day, they, they left a huge gap so Chelsea were able to slot passes into him and he was then able I to do I could thing. have passed the ball to Lukaku against, uh, <laughs> against Arsenal, given the gaps they'd left. Blimey. Very, very, very true. But like we, we saw against Juventus, for example, um, Juventus did a, a brilliant job of blocking that pathway plus getting men around him. Um, but in saying that, I think on Saturday he had the least touches uh, of a ball in, in any game so far. It was only 19 touches of the football, one shot. He needs to also try and impose himself a lot more than he's doing. So that's a, a striker who was in the city of Milan, who's now at Chelsea. We're now going to talk about a former Chelsea striker who is in the city of Milan, playing for AC Milan, of course. That's Olivier Giroud. David went to Milan. <laughs> this tough life. David went to Milan last week uh, to meet Giroud. Here's a clip of that meeting. Chelsea... Uh, are proven winners. You've won many trophies there and they take a different path to your previous club, Arsenal. What do Chelsea do right that Arsenal do not do right, in your view? Which, which model do you think is better? Well, uh, as I said, at Chelsea, when you are not scoring enough goals as a striker, they might, uh, year after, pick up another <laughs> striker to replace yeah. you. Uh, I mean, I could say maybe uh, in a club like Chelsea, um, you have less time to uh, show your qualities than at Arsenal. Mm. That's the main difference. And uh, also, obviously, the 10 past years uh, shows that uh, Chelsea uh, has uh, won more trophies. Uh, you can see the whole interview on the Athletics YouTube video, which is also well worth looking at just to see the pressure David must have felt to get his grooming spot on when you're filming something with Olivier Giroud. Even more pressure is that uh, his book and therefore his face is being used to prop up my microphone. So he's been staring at me throughout this entire podcast. He said to you there, demands at Chelsea are higher than at mm. Arsenal, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, and that caused quite a how the French say it, polemic reaction among Arsenal fans who did not take kindly to it. And what, to him saying it yeah. or, the, or the fact that it might be true? To him saying it, right. uh, they retaliated in a, in a very hostile way from what I saw on social media and the comments below our interview uh, on The Athletic, the written piece and also the video, because they feel that he was a part, uh, a, a fundamental part of why... That wasn't the case at Arsenal during his years there. But I've got to say as an impartial observer that he's probably just speaking the truth. Chelsea are a winning machine. I've spent time around both clubs. And when you're at Cobham or, or Stamford Bridge, that place just oozes winning. Under Roman Abram Abramovich, you've seen that. I mean, it's, it's, it's manifested itself in trophies. And yeah, many people will point to the sustained... Um, heavy spending and Giroud does do that. But David, I can I can understand Arsenal fans going, well, hang on a minute. That's to be some personal responsibility yeah. in all of this as well. So it's all, all very well saying demands are higher at a club yeah. because of what they've done in their immediate past or whatever it may be. But it, you as you as an individual, you as a person can be part of a collective that changes that, yeah. changes that mentality. And demands more of yourself and your teammates. But the key you just said there is part of a collective. And Giroud couldn't do it on his own at Arsenal, whatever he did right or wrong. And he's not been able to do it on his own at Chelsea. Part of a very successful collective at Chelsea, despite a change in manager during his time with uh, Frank Lampard uh, replacing Antonio Conte. And then another change in Tuchel replacing uh, Lampard. Um, but what permeates throughout the different managers at Chelsea and throughout the years and and you could say generations is since Abramovich came in, those expectations are for managers and players to win the biggest trophies or you're out. And Giroud is pointing out something that appears to be factually correct, that that's not the case at Arsenal. 
you can fail to win or miss out on winning the top honours or even competing for them. And whether you're a manager or a player, they take a slightly different approach. They show greater faith. They want to build over time. It's a different sort of model and philosophy. Arsenal are spending more now than they did when Giroud was there. They outspent Chelsea in terms of the gross and net spend, I think, during the uh, summer transfer window and the results are kind of there for all to see I've got to say like he was so complimentary about Arsenal and a, a lot of people picked out quotes from him after he won the World Cup where it was perceived that he had a bit of a pop at Arsenal and say he's always digging at Arsenal I, I don't think he is he speaks glowingly of how he thought about the club when he was a boy he speaks glowingly about his ambition and then uh, one that was realised to play under Arsene Wenger. Uh, he won FA Cups there, but he had an incredibly successful time at Chelsea, although it was not without its own frustrations because this is a player who has seemingly never fully been given the recognition or acceptance that that he wants. And he's always having to prove people wrong when sort of glossier, maybe not more handsome upgrades are sought. He was a good signing for Chelsea though, wasn't he, Simon? Superb, yeah. Um, and you only have to look at sort of the, the affection he's held in among Chelsea supporters. And, and they were actually very sad to see him go, even though the timing was right. And, and just sort of touching on this theme, this is a, a very familiar path also trodden by Cesc Fabregas, of course, another player synonymous with Arsenal. Ashley but, Cole. Uh, and Ashley Cole, of course. And and then he sort of talked to, talked to these guys. And of course, they still hold great affection for Arsenal. But they love the fact they joined Chelsea because they've got the medals to show for it. Um, there's also not that room for sentiment at Chelsea. Again, touching on something David said, that, put it this way, if Mikel Arteta was Chelsea manager, as we saw with Frank Lampard, He'd be gone by now. He'd be long gone. You could argue Arsenal sort of kept Arsene Wenger for perhaps longer than he should have done. Again, he would have been long gone if he was Chelsea manager. The, the, the demands... Chelsea sat managers mid-season and then go on to win major silverware, whereas that you can argue about Chelsea's approach and they almost succeed in spite of themselves sometimes. But they are the most successful club since Abramovich took over and it's not just simply because they spend a lot of money, it's because they don't settle for second best. I think we'll leave it there. Simon, David, Adam, uh, thank you very much. Thank you uh, as well to you for listening. If you want to read uh, any of the articles that we've discussed today, and there's some cracking ones up there at the moment, then just head to theathletic.com slash football pod and you'll get a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. So theathletic.com slash football pod and you get 33% off the annual subscription. Uh, that's it for now. I'll be back on Thursday uh, for the Business of Sport podcast. The Athletic.